seat. Great for our kids could worship with us today, but then they get to go back to their classrooms and learn. And hopefully you guys can as well. We're in our last message of our message series we've entitled Exhausted because it describes kind of how life is. And we want to look at a topic today that I think probably all of us deal with in some way. But before we talk about that, I want to tell you what's going to be happening next weekend here at the chapel. We get, to be, we get to hear, excuse me, from our pastoral intern, Jeremiah Micatuck. Jeremiah has cerebral palsy, and he's in seminary right now, and he uh, gets to serve here with us at the chapel over the next few months, and uh, he'll be sharing next week from stage, which is going to be an incredible thing. Uh, I always joke with Jeremiah, I say, you know, um, interns are supposed to learn from us, but I think our staff at the chapel, at least I can attest to this, that we are learning so much through Jeremiah. So we're grateful that he gets to share his story of uh, his disability and what God has to say about that next week. So be ready for that. But for today, I want to take you back 90 years to 1932. During 1932, theologian Richard Niebuhr penned a prayer that is known to us today as the serenity prayer. Many of us have probably heard the serenity prayer prayed. Maybe we have it up in our homes. If you've ever been a, um, a part of Alcoholics Anonymous or our Celebrate Recovery ministry here, we share that prayer as well. And it's a fantastic prayer. In fact, when I was looking at it to get ready for our message this weekend, I kept thinking to myself, I want this to be true in my own life. How much my life would change if I really believed these words. And so I'm going to put this on the screen for you this morning, and I just want you to recite this prayer with me out loud. Will you do that? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Can you imagine if this prayer came true in our lives? Can you imagine trusting God with the things we can't control, controlling and changing the things that God has given us strength to do, and then understanding the difference between what am I supposed to do and what God is supposed to do. Can you imagine how that would change everything in our lives? The question is, why don't we? Why don't we allow God to answer this prayer in our lives? I think the reason is it becomes down to one word. We want to be in control. I mean, for God to answer this prayer means that he would have to be in control and he calls the shots. But as a human, we like to call the shots, don't we? We want to have the final say. We want to be the one to control the process and the outcome of certain things. And so even though we may call ourselves Christians and we come to church on Sunday, at the end of the day, God, we would rather control our lives. Thank you very much. Go back to doing whatever you else were doing. We all want to be in control. But have you ever wondered why we do that? Why is control such a hot topic issue for so many of us? Well, control, like anger, is actually, actually secondary. When it comes to anger and when it comes to control, there is something underneath of it pushing it up to the surface. What is that in our lives that's pushing control up to the surface? Well, if you travel down to the bottom, you would realize quickly that control is rooted in fear. There are certain fears and worries that we don't want to come true. And because we are worried and fearful about certain things, we want to take control of our lives so it does not come true. Some of the fears that I thought of, and there's so many more that we could think of, it's the fear of rejection, the fear that our children will make bad decisions, the fear that our outer beauty will fade, the fear that our politicians won't make the decisions I feel are best, 
the fear that the market will crash, the fear that my desires and dreams won't come true. I mean, I could have said so many more, and there's so many fears and worries that you and I have, and when we're scared, when we're fearful, when we're worried, we don't want those things to come true, and so what do we do? We try to control the situation, we try to control people, we try to control the outcomes, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we're trying to control God. For those of you who are like me and can tend to be control freaks at times, how are you doing? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? The reason that you are is this. Control is an illusion. Control is a mirage. We all know what a mirage is. When you get up close, you realize it really wasn't there in the first place. And yet, when we control the situation, it's an illusion, which means we think what we're going to control will happen, but it probably won't. I mean, how many circumstances have we tried to control that went the other way? How many people have we tried to control that did something that we didn't want them to do? Control is an illusion. And when we try to control everything and everyone, we tend to live exhausted lives. Or if I could put it this way, and the way I want you to remember our message today, is being in control eventually leads to being out of control. How many of us try to control our families? What happens when we can't? We become out of control. How many of us try to control circumstances at work when you can't? What happens? We become out of control. How many of you try to control circumstances at school when we can't do that? We become out of control. There are so many of us that are out of control in our lives. And we need to do something in order for God to take that control away from us. So what I want to do today is I want to look at two Old Testament stories with you. The first one tells us what happens when we control our lives and the, and the consequences that come from that that many of us are facing right now. And then the second story I'm going to share with you is what happens when a group of teenagers decide to give control to God and ultimately what happens. But the first story I want to talk to you about is about this control freak named King Saul. So I want you to open your Bibles to first. Samuel. We're going to begin in chapter 9. King Saul was this guy who becomes king because the Israelites are begging God for a king. They're like, God, how come all of our neighboring nations have a king and we don't? We want a king. You've heard it said, be careful what you wish for. In this case, I think the Israelites are probably thinking that after Saul takes over. But we are introduced to this King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And look what it says about him right away. His, meaning Benjamin's son Saul, was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. In short, Saul was a stud. He was that guy when he was walking around, everyone stopped. Guys and girls were like, man, this dude is a good-looking dude. Not only was he good-looking, he was tall. He had this presence about him that when he walked by, he just stopped and stared. Well, King Saul, who is this guy who could have been featured on People magazine, all of a sudden becomes Israel's king. Not only will he be Israel's king, he gets to lead them when it comes to battling other countries. He will be this military hero. The Israelites can't wait for it. Or will he? Sometimes the things on the outside aren't the same as they are on the inside. Am I right? 
Saul is a stud. He's handsome. He's tall. He's good looking. The problem, though, is what's on the inside doesn't match that. For Saul is one of the most insecure people that you will ever read about, ever, and it happens to be in the scriptures. And what we will find out quickly is insecurity leads to fear, which ultimately leads to control. And what we will see in Saul's life are two things that I think are affecting us when it comes to control issues in our life. The first is this, being in control pushes God out of the picture of our lives. Some of us, when we look at our lives, again, we may say we worship Jesus and we come to church and we give and we may read the Bible and pray. All that's fine, but that doesn't mean that God is in the picture of our lives. And King Saul, we, in King Saul's life, we see this quickly because if we fast forward in his life just a little bit, we see his ultimate demise. Fast forward just a little bit in first. Samuel 13, verses 13 through 14. Samuel, he says this to Saul. How foolish are you, Saul? You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must, your kingdom must end. Why? For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So we hear Samuel say, hey, Saul, everything would have been great. You would have continued to be the king. The problem is you forgot that you started to lead for God's sake. Now you're leading for your own sake. You've taken control. And because you've taken control, now you've lost your kingdom, your seat, your throne forever. Why? What does he do so wrong? Well, before Saul is going to lead his men into battle, God says, hey, I just want you to do one thing. Allow Samuel to come and make an offering to me. And an offering was just a way to worship and honor God. Really what they were saying is, God, we believe that you're going to win this battle for us and we want to worship you. And God just said, simply obey what I have to say. Just do what I have to say. And then everything's going to be fine. But if in control we push God out of the picture, Saul learns quickly that that's exactly what happens to him because Saul, he doesn't wait for Samuel. You see, his guys start to tell Saul, oh my goodness, the enemy's coming. We have to act quickly. And remember, Saul's insecure. And because he's insecure, he starts to fear. And because he fears, he ends up going ahead of what God wants him to do. Instead of waiting for Samuel, waiting for God's timing, waiting and doing it God's way, he says, I'll offer this sacrifice. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that God said you're not supposed to do it this way. And whether Saul agrees with that or not, that's just how it is. And because we quickly realize that Saul pushes God out of the picture, God cares so much about his people. He says, I need someone who's going to wait on me. I need someone that knows he's leading for my sake. Control always pushes God out of the picture. Not only does that in Saul's life, because he's completely removed God out of the picture, we do that as well. That's why Pastor John Tyson, he puts it this way. When we take things into our own hands, we take them out of God's and disaster ensues. I hear it so many times, and I think this to myself as well. How many times do we get upset at God because we've asked him 
to help us or asked him to lead our lives or asked him to bless us, and he doesn't. And there's various reasons why he doesn't, but I wonder when we ask that question, are we telling God, where are you, where in fact God is saying to us, where am I? Meaning you, you've pushed me out of the picture. You want to lead your life. You want to be quarterback. You want to be coach. You want to be receiver. You want to be everything. And you've relegated me to the sidelines. How can I lead your life? How can I bless you? How can I take you where you need to go when you've pushed me out of the picture? So often we think God is the one at fault, but sometimes we are the one that push God out of the picture. How many of us, when we look at our lives right now, again, we may read the Bible and pray and come to church, but is God in the game and is he the quarterback? Is he the coach? Is he the GM? Or is it just us saying, oh, I love Jesus, but I'm really in control? It doesn't work that way. And if you're like me, when you and I live that way, disaster ensues. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's say that as you're looking at your finances, you're not happy with your financial picture. And you realize that, man, I'm spending more than I am earning. I'm not able to save anything. And I've tried to do finances God's way. It's not working. So now, or my way, so now I want to ask God to lead my finances. And so you're really diligently trying to save and pay off debt. And then all of a sudden you want to make a purchase. A purchase you know you don't need, but you really want it. And as you look at your bank account, your bank account's saying, oh, no, 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 you cannot afford this. And God is saying, no, 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 you need to wait on me. I know you want this now, but it's just instant gratification. For one thing, you're going to get tired of it anyways, and we have this journey to go together so you can have freedom once and for all. And you're like, okay, God, I'm listening to you. But then all of a sudden you hear a louder voice, a voice of promise, a voice of reason. And it comes from Visa and MasterCard. And you recognize pretty quickly, yeah, I don't have money in the bank, but Visa and MasterCard have money. And they are so easy. I can just swipe it. I can tap it. I can put my phone up to it. I mean, I can get that thing. And then we start to do things our way, and then we spiral out of control, and then the debt piles up, and then we're like, God, where are you? Why am I living this way? And God's like, well, I thought we had a plan here. I thought I was going to lead your life. I thought I was going to control things. You've pushed me out of the picture, so why are you surprised you're in this predicament? Or think of a decision that maybe you need to make that's going to affect your whole family. And, okay, God, I, I want you to lead the process. And so we always say, okay, one of the ways we hear from God is we look at Scripture. And we're reading Scripture, and we're like, okay, yeah, that's, I think God's using this to tell me no. And then I'm going to go to wise counsel. And wise counsel, my pastor, my small group, my friends who know Jesus, they're saying no. But my heart is saying yes. I interpret this as a red light, but it's not really red. It's yellow to red. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like, do I hit the brake or do I hit the gas? And in that moment, you hit the gas. And you justify that it was really a yellow and you blaze through it. And then we wonder why we are in a mess. Is it God's fault? God's the one that says, if you do it my way, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's going to be worth it. You're going to have peace, joy. I'm going to get you freedom. But we end up in predicaments because when we want to control the situation, what happens? We end up being out of control, just like Saul is. That one decision that he makes pushes God out of the picture, and he loses his throne forever. That's what happens when we control the situation. But it just doesn't hurt our 
relationship with God, what does it also do? It hurts our relationship with others. It damages our relationship with others. There are some of us, because of our insecurities, which lead to fears, which leads to control, there are some relationships at our workplaces or in our friendships or in our family that it's not going well because we have decided to be in control. Let me tell you what happens with uh, Saul. Saul, again, is so insecure, but he just goes over the edge. What started out as him leading for God's sake, all of a sudden he changes his tune. Not only does he push God out of the picture, but now he does something horrific. Look what happens a little bit later in Saul's life in 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 11. It says, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Let's talk about that just for a moment. When we look at the Hebrew of this phrase, what we recognize pretty quickly isn't that God just said, you need to go on to Saul, but God allows it. Now, are you saying God allows evil things to happen? Here's what I'm saying. If Saul would have been God-centered and his eyes were on God at that moment when that evil spirit came on him, he could have reached out to God and through God's power, he could have said, get away from me. But Saul pushed God out of the picture. Saul has no chance. And so now, instead of pushing back against evil, he allows it. And look what happens because of this. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, which is a musical instrument, as he usually did. And then Saul had a spear in his hand. He hurled it, say it to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Holy smokes, that got out of hand really quickly. Here's David who's leading for God's sake, and now he's about to commit, or Saul, now he's going to commit murder. (laughs) He is so jealous of David who is going to succeed him on the throne. And God is out of the picture so much so that he almost commits murder. How control can damage our relationships so quickly. As I think about these verses, I cringe because I think of my own life. Some of you are like, have you tried to commit murder? No, I have not tried to commit murder. I don't plan on doing that. But I have murdered with my words. I have this fear that I've recognized lately as I've been processing this, that it's fear is rooted in this insecurity. I have an insecurity that I won't be a good dad. And so though the fear then is, since I don't think I can be a good dad, the fear is my kids won't turn out to be good. Now, you can say, well, that's a silly fear. I mean, Paula's raising those kids, right? I'm like, yes, she is, and she's doing a great job. (laughs) So I shouldn't have to fear anything. But I want you to think about some of your fears and worries for a moment. As preposterous as they really are, they're real to you. And for some reason, maybe it's because of who my dad was in my life, I'm I'm so afraid that I'll repeat some of those behaviors, and so I I don't want to do that. And so when my kids act out, I tend to control the situation. One of my goals for the year is to let my kids be kids. But I'm not really good at that. Because if I allow my kids to be kids and they don't turn out the way that I want them to, how will that reflect upon me? 
And it's a really hard situation. I have two boys, nine and seven, who already think they're professional WWE wrestlers, so they're fighting all the time. My five and three-year-old girls are frenemies. They're sometimes playing together, and the next time they're scratching each other. And instead of letting just kids be kids, I'm so fearful that I control the situation by screaming at them and going off on them and saying words that I don't really mean, but because I'm trying to control their behavior, they come out anyway. What is that going to do over time? My kids may be the best behaved kid you've ever seen in your life. What if they resent me? Control always damages the other person, even though it makes you feel good. But control is an illusion. I may be able to control the situation, but I may be losing hearts in the process. How many of us are trying to control our spouse or our kids or our grandkids or the direction of our lives or people in our workplaces? And as you try to control, because you have these fears that are bathed in insecurity, you are becoming a control freak. And the problem is you may say you love Jesus and you may have a smile on your face, and I believe you, the problem is God's not in the picture. And because God's not in the picture, we are damaging others in the process. That's why a lot of us are exhausted. So what do you do? Is there a solution? I think there is. I want to introduce you to three Jewish teenagers named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We introduced them a couple weeks ago. We talked about David's character. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are amazing guys because they, like Daniel, are willing to worship Yahweh no matter the cost. And there comes a time where King Nebuchadnezzar, who is not only a control freak, he is a raging narcissist. So much so that he erects a golden statue of himself. Who does that? And he puts a statue of himself so that people will bow down to it. Again, he's very insecure. And so he needs people to bow down to him. The problem is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to Babylonian gods. They don't bow down to a king. They bow down to the king, Yahweh people find out that they're not doing what they're called to do. And so I had this text on the screen for you, but I messed up the verse references so badly, I'd rather just read it for you. This is Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Let me read these to you. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have put up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I have made when you hear the sound of musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Well, that is a dilemma. Either Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continue to worship Yahweh and they bow down to him and not Nebuchadnezzar or any Babylonian gods that they're trying to have him worship or they continue to worship Yahweh and be killed for it. What would you do? Here's what they did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, don't need to, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. 
He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I love that. Like, look, if you throw us in the fire, he has the power to save us. But this next point is so mind-blowing. Listen to this. But even if he doesn't, even if we are thrown in the fire and we die, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the statue you have set up. (laughs) Imagine if these three got together and they asked the question, what if? Okay, guys, what if this raging lunatic really will throw us in the fire? It's the same question that you and I ask when it comes to some of our fears. What if this happens? What if this comes true? What if, what if, what if? And that always leads to control. What if my job is on the line? What if my kids act this way? What if I don't get what I want? And oftentimes, we then say, I don't want that to happen, so we control the situation. But these guys don't say what if. They say even if. Even if you throw us in the fire, and our God, who can save us, if he chooses not to, we will go down in flames, literally, trusting that God's ways are higher than my ways, and I trust him even in the midst of death. You want to break the control issues once and for all? J.D. Greer says this, replace the what-ifs with the even-ifs in your life. What if I'm rejected? Nobody wants to be rejected. That's one of my biggest fears. What if I'm rejected needs to be replaced with, even if I am rejected, I am accepted by God, whom is pleased with me because of Jesus. And my identity is secure in him no matter what other people say about me. Imagine living that way. What if I lose my job? That's a real situation. I am not downplaying that. And you can travel down that one-if path all you want. But what if we said this? What if I lose my job is replaced with even if I do? Maybe God has something so much better for me on the horizon that I can't even begin to explain. Imagine if that was our way of thinking. What if my kids make poor choices? And it confirms that maybe I'm a bad dad. Is replaced with even if my kids make poor choices. My God cares more about my kids than I can ever imagine. And I'm going to entrust them with the results, no matter if the results are not what I want. The what if question is an illusion that leads to a life of exhaustion. The even if question leads to the path of trust, which even if it doesn't turn out the way we want, always gives us joy, peace, and ultimately freedom. And when we ask the question, even if, instead of what if, not only does it break the curse of control, then God can answer this prayer that we prayed before. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What I want us to do, would you just bow your head in prayer as we end our time together? I put up a couple fear phrases earlier, but 
can you just think of some of those insecurities that lead to fear, that lead to you being in control? Asking the question, what if? Could you just think about those just for a few moments? Bring those before the Lord right now. And now, can you take, ask that what if question and then replace that with even if? What if this happens? We replace that with even if this happens. Take time to pray those to Jesus right now. Lord, when I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I look at Saul, I see two glaring differences. The three have their security in you, which means they don't fear death, which means they let go of control. Whereas Saul is so insecure that led to so many fears that he was out of control with you and with others. Help us to replace the what-if questions in our lives so that we may live the even-if life which means trusting you, which leads to this desperation of peace and joy and freedom we are asking you to give us, God. Thank you for all you do for us on a daily basis. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.